Uh, how's everybody doing? Good, good. So first, just a quick uh, trivia question for you guys. Let's see if anybody knows the answer to this. Who was the last performer at Woodstock in 1969, that Woodstock? Who was the last performer? That's right. Give this man a gold star. It was, in fact, Jimi Hendrix, who was the second to last performer at Woodstock. That, tragically, was Sha Na Na, one of the worst <coughs> bands in history. I am well aware that tonight I am Sha Na Na, and you are here for Jimi Hendrix. And that's okay. I am here just to provide a little bit of context for why, why we did the book, what the message we want the book to bring, and then John will tell you his story. Now, when John asked me to write the book, I mean, he didn't have to ask me twice. And not just because I have so much respect and reverence for that moment in 1968 when they put their fist in the air, but because I thought doing the book with John would help me answer the question why, and it's a double why. Why did John Carlos do that in 1968? Why did he risk so much knowing that the repercussions would be so great? And then the second question, which is, why do we still care? It's been 43 years. We don't still care about Sha Na Na. <laughs> but we still care about this moment and frankly I can tell you after speaking on college campuses with John all this week to see young people born decades after this event occurred approach him literally shaking and just wanting to have pictures with him why is that so those are the two questions why did he do it why do we still care and when I say why did he do it I mean, it starts with what, uh, with what the gentleman here said right before. I mean, the man had phenomenal speed. As our old friend Gilbert Arenas would said, his swag was phenomenal. <laughs> I mean, there are no, the man could, any track and field fans here? By the way, show of hands. All right, so we're going to pick on you in the back there. All right, good or bad? if you can run 100 yards in less than nine seconds. That's phenomenally good. That's phenomenally good. And it wasn't just that. It was that he was able to run that kind of world-class speed at 60 yards, 60 meters, 100 yards, 100, all the way up to 200 meters. World-class speed. When you have gifts like that, when you are, as they say, so fast that you can turn off the lights and get in bed before the lights go out, when you have that kind of speed, there are certain promises that are bestowed to you, promises of riches, promises of wealth, promises of privilege. And yet John Carlos rejected all of that, knowingly and consciously, by doing what he did in 1968. And to answer the question about why John did that, I mean, first of all, to say it's very rooted in his personal story, which he'll share with you, but I would argue it's also very rooted in the African-American experience in this country which is gonna sound familiar to you all in, to here tonight. John Carlos is two generations removed from slavery. That's it. His father was born in the 1890s. His father fought in World War I as a teenager, going from the South where he was a sharecropper to fight for a democracy overseas that he could not find when he came back to the United States. John Carlos's father chose to raise their family, he and his wife Viola, 
in Harlem, New York. Now raise your hand if you've been in Harlem, New York in the last five years. Okay, all of you who raise your hand, you don't know what John Carlos's Harlem was like. Because where you were, with a Starbucks on every corner and homes we can't afford to live in, that's not the Harlem that John Carlos grew up in. John Carlos grew up in a Harlem at the tail end of the Harlem Renaissance, where you had two combining factors taking place. The first was the issue of white flight, drugs coming into the community, police brutality. But at the same time, it was a Harlem where little Johnny Carlos could run down the street and exchange words with Malcolm X. It was a Harlem where John Carlos, as a young man, could go into Abyssinian Baptist Church and hear Adam Clayton Powell, senior and junior, speak. In other words, it was a Harlem where a young African-American boy could feel like his destiny was nothing else but to be a man. You felt like a man growing up in that Harlem, that you were going to be a man. His father, Earl Vanderbilt Carlos, was a man, and he felt that sense of himself. Now, as John Carlos is growing up, he discovers that he has world-class speed. And he'll tell you how he discovered it, but let's just say it involved being way too fast for the boys in blue. <laughs> but for righteous reasons, as he will share. For very righteous reasons. Let's just say the words Robin Hood come into play. Now, with all of that happening, and with this world-class speed, something else is happening in our society, the African-American freedom struggle. You hear, you, in Harlem, you would hear about the demonstrations in the South. Martin Luther King Jr., as John said, was second to God in his mother's eyes. But at the same time, the movement starts to generate reverberations in the North, in the face of Malcolm X, in the 64 riots in Harlem, 65 in Watts, 67 in Detroit. And as all of this is happening, John Carlos gets a track scholarship to go to East Texas State. So he goes to East Texas State, gets out of an airport, that's Dallas-Fort Worth Airport, which at the time was roughly the size of this room. And I'm not playing when I say that's how big the airport was. What does he see when he gets off the plane? Segregated bathrooms. Called boy by every white person who sees him. At the time, he had a wife, he had a child, and he's called boy. So going from a situation where he saw Malcolm X, Adam Clayton Powell, his own father, never saw himself as anything less than a man, all of a sudden he's a boy. Given that context, it would make a lot of sense why he would say to himself, I need to do something. It's not an option for me to do nothing. It also made sense because the African-American freedom struggle was reverberating in the world of sports. The greatest athletes of the 1960s were also political people. Bill Russell, Jim Brown, Arthur Ashe, they weren't only political, they were the best at what they did on the athletic field. And of course, the most famous athlete on earth, a man who had one foot in the black freedom struggle and one foot in the anti-war movement, Muhammad Ali. Muhammad Ali's title was stripped because he said things like, why should they ask me to go 10,000 miles from home to bomb and burn the darker peoples of the world just because the white slave masters of the world tell me to. These are the day when such evils must come to an end. I've said it before and I'll say it again, but the real enemy of my people is here. So I'll go to jail. So what? We've been in jail for 400 years. It wasn't just that Muhammad Ali said that. It's that he said that as the most famous athlete on the planet. So when John Carlos was approached about being a founding member of the Olympic Project for Human Rights, and to take a stand and try to organize an African-American boycott of those Olympic Games, 
That was just for him, common sense. Now the Olympic Project for Human Rights, I wanna say something about that, because a lot of people know the moment, the fist in the air, but they don't know the movement. And the movement was over the course of several years. These guys stood for something. They had four central demands. One was to hire more African-American coaches. But that makes sense, right? One was to disinvite South Africa and Rhodesia from the Olympic Games, because they were apartheid countries. One was to fire Avery Brundage as head of the International Olympic Committee. Let's just say Avery Brundage was so out there that if he ever met Michelle Bachman, she'd be like, damn, you're nuts. <laughs> That's how far out there Avery Brundage was. Seriously, make Michelle Bachman look like Rosa Parks. That's how crazy Avery Brundage was. And four, and this one is the one that just hits me right in the heart, their fourth central demand was to restore Muhammad Ali's title, and they called him the warrior saint of the black athletes' revolt. Now, the African-American boycott did not congeal. A lot of reasons for why that took place, but one of the ones that never gets discussed nearly enough is the fact that the International Olympic Committee buckled on one of those demands and did disinvite South Africa and Rhodesia from those 68 games. And that did also have the effect of cleaving some of the momentum of that movement. So they go to the games in 68, and John Carlos and Tommy Smith and Lee Evans, they said, you know what? We're not just going to let this go by without doing something. So John and Tommy came up with this idea. And the idea is intense. And I wish I had the poster up to show you how intense it was, because it's not just about putting on a black glove and raising your fist. It was about the fact that they were also wearing beads and scarves as a symbol of the history of lynching in the United States. They weren't wearing shoes as a symbol of African-American poverty in the United States. The third gentleman on the platform with them was Peter Norman from Australia. He was wearing a solidarity button that said Olympic Project for Human Rights. You look at that picture, you see that John Carlos's arm is cocked just a little bit like this. And ask John why that's the case. He said, well, I assumed someone would run up on us and I wanted to give him that hammer punch. <laughs> and then you see the look on their faces and ask yourself the question, what was going on through their heads? Well, many things were going on through their heads, many thoughts. But one of the first and foremost thoughts was, someone might shoot us and kill us for doing this. And if that sounds wild and far-fetched, think for a second about that year, 1968. The assassination of Dr. King, the assassination of Robert Kennedy, the slaughter of hundreds and hundreds of Mexican students and workers days before the start of those Olympic Games. And so Tommy said to John, he said, what are we going to do if someone tries to actually take a shot at us? And John said, well, you know we're trained to listen for the gun, and we're also fast, so <laughs> we'll do our best. And so all of this is going on in that one picture. And I got to say, if anybody's a teacher here, it's an amazing teaching tool to be able just to show that picture to young people and point out all the different things that are happening there. And then the other thing you don't see in the poster when they raise their fists is what was happening in the stadium around them too. When they first did it, as John said, it got so quiet in there you could have heard a frog piss on cotton. And, and then the booze came. And then people started to sing the national anthem in the crowd and not in a way that, you know, it was like Whitney Houston in 1991, but in an ugly way, in an angry way in a how-dare-you kind of way. And in, in the aftermath of those games, the media then jumped on their backs with two feet. The Los Angeles Times said they engaged in what they called a Nazi-like salute. 
no word about the demands, no word about the Olympic project for human rights. A young sports writer who you might have heard of named Brent Musburger. Oh, okay, all right. You okay. said say about Brent Musburger. I thought you said a young sports writer earlier and didn't mention his name. I want you to mention his name. You got it, John. And believe me, we're going to mention Brent Musburger's name wherever we go. Because Brent Musburger, who's so famous now and whatnot, does all the broadcasts. He was a young writer writing for a publication called the Chicago American. He called them, quote, black-skinned stormtroopers, end quote, for doing what they did. About as ugly a statement as you can imagine. The media situation was so ugly that John went back home, visited his father. His father was dying at the time. And his father actually held up a newspaper and said, are you as terrible as this newspaper says? Are you this bad? And John had to look at his father in his last days and say, Daddy, you know me. You know me. And so that, that's what they did to these men. And John can tell you this himself, but he paid a terrible price for many, many years for doing what he did. He suffered. His family suffered. His children suffered. But what's remarkable about John is that he's never regretted for one solitary second taking the stand that he did. And that's where we get to the second question, and then I'll sit down and bring on Jimi Hendrix. Um, I mean, John Carlos. Why do we still care? Well, there are a couple of reasons why we still care. There's some reasons that are given. One reason why we still care is that you've seen in recent years the media re-embraced Tommy Smith and John Carlos. They were given an ESPY award, the Arthur Ashe Courage Award at the 2008 Games. And I swear, there's nothing this country likes doing more than breaking its own arm, patting itself on the back about how it re-embraces people they used to see as dangerous. Like, oh, look at us. We have a Malcolm X postage stamp. Aren't we progressive? Paul Robeson on a postage stamp. They won't tell you who these people were. They won't tell you what they stood for. But they'll put Martin Luther King on a commemorative cup at McDonald's and not say a damn thing about him. And they've tried to do the same with Tommy Smith and John Carlos. Another reason why people still care is their names come up anytime the issue of sports and politics begin to come together. Anytime you have athletes who dare use that hyper-exalted brought to you by Nike platform to take a stand. So when you have people like, like for example, Steve Nash take a stand against the immigration policies in Arizona, or when you have somebody like Atan Thomas, formerly of the Washington Wizards, speak at anti-war rallies, speak out against the death penalty, uh, when you have people like some of the great women athletes like Cheryl Swoops speak out for LGBT rights and speak out for her right to live with any partner she chooses. I mean, these things, people always then say, well, is this a Tommy Smith and John Carlos moment? But I would argue that the number one reason why it still has resonance today, I mean, frankly, I can answer it in two words. Troy Davis. Troy Davis. African-American family in the White House, legal lynching in Georgia. I could answer it in three words, Occupy Wall Street. Think about the people out there protesting right now. Think about all the unhappiness and poverty and the dissent that's bubbling in this country. When that happens, people try to look to history for inspiration. And there are few moments more inspirational that really encapsulate this idea that we can stand up and fight back more than that moment in 1968. And so to close, I want to quote somebody who um, is a young woman who was in a meeting that we did about the case of Troy Davis when we're trying to organize a response to the horrible execution that took place September 21st. And she was very upset. And, and in a moment of just being very choked up, she said, I know why they killed Troy, because there's nothing this country can abide less than a truly free black man. And that's what Troy Davis was becoming, speaking out for his own life on death row. 
I think the reason why that picture of John Carlos and Tommy Smith <coughs> still holds so much incredible resonance is because you look up at them sacrificing so much in that one crystallized moment, they are nothing if not free. And as John Carlos says, how can you ask somebody to live in this world and not have something to say about injustice? And with that, I give you the man himself, Dr. John Carlos. Well, thank you. It's, it's an honor for me to be here in Washington, D.C. with you and to see so many wonderful people here to come out in uh, my new endeavors. As uh, was mentioned, I was a runner. I was a runner a long time before I put my foot on the earth. My mom had a problem, as you'll see in the book, with this particular child because uh, I was a breech baby. And for you older women that know what a breech baby situation is, the doctor had to move me around in my mother's womb three times. He would move me around and tell my mom we have to move this baby around because he might break his arms or his legs or what have you. By the time my mother got back home, I'd have moved myself back to the way I wanted to come out. <laughs> three times. Then the doctor told my mother, said, Mrs. Carlos, we got to leave this baby to see what he's going to do. When I came out, I came out, but first. It's like a U-shape. So I don't know whether I was illustrating unity at that time or not. <laughs> but when I came into the world, I guess by the fact that my father was a World War I, World War I veteran, the fact that he was a self-made man at a time when you didn't see too many black individuals have their own businesses. He was an entrepreneur. My mom came in from Cuba. I remember my mom was a young, tall, fine woman, good-looking. I remember y'all used to walk down the street when the guys be out there trying to talk to her, and I'll put the look on for my father, like, I'll come back for you. <laughs> we looking at my mama like that. But then I began to realize that I was living in a world of greatness. When I see a world of greatness, I can recall me laying in my bedroom and arguing with my brothers about Man, open up the window. Man, it's too cold. There's snow coming in the window. Don't open the window. And I'm saying, open up the window, man. Who that woman is down there singing? Because we could hear all the entertainment from the Savoy Ballroom. Savoy Ballroom was a half a block from my house. John Basie's band, Duke Ellington. All the greats came through there. Nina Hahn, Sarah Vaughn, Ella Fitzgerald. And that kind of cemented my soul. Made me relax. Even Louis Armstrong, he can blow that horn, but you know that raspy voice of his is even better than the horn. And then when you get tired of listening to Savoy, you could hear him stomping at the Cotton Club as well. So this kind of cemented me to make me know that I was on solid ground. I know that I had a stern father and a loving mother. I remember my mother's sacrifice, her nights with my father, sleeping with my father, and I thought that was kind of deep that my mother was sacrificed going to bed with her man at night because she wanted to go to Bellevue to make extra dollars to take care of us. I thought about that, and while I'm thinking about that, I thought about my father being creative and my father having a paradigm that, hey, man, everybody deserves a decent shot in society. And I remember my father going to the Chinese-Americans 
and all they had was a big laundry mat down there by the Rockland Palace in New York. Big laundry mat where they was in there and they was doing all the shirts and all the sheets for the hotels. And my father talked to them and said, what kind of social life do you have? They said, we have no social life in America. And I remember my father marching down to the Savoy Ballroom and talking to some honcho down there and told him, say, hey, I want to bring my social club into the Savoy. We want a night. They worked out a deal. Wednesday nights it was. All the Chinese Americans can get together through my father's social club. Now, mind you, I wasn't tall at this table at that time. I don't even think I was that tall. My brothers wasn't much taller than me. And my father told me one night, he said, we're going to the meeting that afternoon. We're going to the meeting. What meeting? And I remember my mother getting us ready. We all was clean every day, three-piece suits, ties, the whole nine yards. And you know, my father being a shoemaker, our shoes was always shine. <laughs> and I'm excited. We're going to the meeting. We're going to the meeting. And I remember we marched from the living room into the kitchen. <laughs> and we was at the meeting. And my father sat at one end of the table, and my mother sat at the other end. I sat next to my mother, and my brother sat over with my father. My father was the CEO. <laughs> my mother was the treasurer secretary. And my brother and I, we were board members. <laughs> I didn't know what a board member was, but I was there. And that kind of impressed me, the fact that my father had this entrepreneurship. He was his own man. I admired my old man about that. And then I began to look at other things that was happening in my neighborhood relative to all people, not just black people, Asian people, but all people. Because in Harlem at that particular, particular time, it was like a fruit bowl. Everybody was there. Puerto Ricans was there. Jamaicans was there. Cubans was there. Black Americans was there. Whites. Irish, Italian, Jew, everybody was there. And everything was fine and dandy. And then one night, boom, I went to sleep. The next day I woke up, I see people packing their bags. I see them backing trucks up, putting their furniture in trucks. And I'm looking like, like the aliens was coming. They was getting out of Dodge. And I'm asking my father, I say, Pop, what, what's happening? Why is everybody moving? And he was trying to explain to my brother and I that a lot of the white folks was leaving town because it's difficult for you to have a domesticated worker work for you and then look over and your domesticated worker is your neighbor. So we're not going to live on the same stand that you live and you work for me. So they scattered. They got out of Dodge. And it's amazing that I lived long enough to see them returning <laughs> because now they come back to take the city again. But the bottom line is that struck a chord in me for me to keep my eyes open, keep my ears open, and look at what this life was all about. And in this early stage in my life, I realized that if you're going to succeed in life, you had to know the game plan. And in any game, anyone can tell you there's certain things in the game that you look for. You look for what's the concept of a game? To win the game or to lose the game? That's only two things you're going to do in the game. No drawing the game. Either you winning or you losing. For those that lost, they lost because they didn't realize that there was rules of the game. They didn't learn the rules. Well, my father taught us the rules real early in life. He said, when you do something, you make sure you check it out at every perspective you can. You make sure you're right. And my father taught me about the essence of 48 hours. Mm -hmm. 
48 hours was a big number in my household because I was a mischievous kid, I was a curious kid, and I was a serious kid. So when I went out to do certain things, I went out and I wasn't afraid to get my pants dirty, I wasn't afraid to get my hands dirty, I wasn't scared to fight, none of that. But before I thought about God, I thought I had fear for my father. And I remember one day I looked on TV and I saw this guy on TV and the thing that attracted me to this guy, first of all, is that he wore my favorite color, which was green. But he had some funny tights on, and I ain't seen too many men wear tights. And he had a funny hat on with a big long feather in it. And then I began to realize as I got older that this guy called Robin Hood was the hero not just for John Carlos, but he was the hero for all kids of all ghettos across this nation. Why? because he was like a savior. His ideals and his morals were to say, I'm not concerned about man's law, I'm concerned about God's law. He split the P in half. I was able to see that early in life. He said, I'm gonna take from the rich and I'm gonna help the poor. It ain't about the law telling me you're wrong when you're breaking the freight train to go help somebody that don't have no food on their table. Only person I was concerned about, not the law, but my daddy. Because I know if I got busted by him, he's going to tell me, say, son, you got 48 hours to figure out what you're going to tell me. Because if you don't, I got something for you. So I grew up with that 48 hours in my head. And why did I go to the freight trains? Because after I saw Robin Hood, I began to see individuals in my neighborhood that was in a bad state of mind. For the old individuals in here, I don't know if you ever ran through New York, but they had a bootleg liquor called King Kong. King Kong today, if I was to put it in perspective of the day, King Kong at that time was like PCP that the kids was using back in the 70s and 80s. They drink it, drink enough of it, and they think they can fly, and they dive off the roof straight to their death. And then one day I went to sleep and woke up just like white flight. I woke up, King Kong was gone, and Heron was in. Smack, mud. Dirt, whatever you want to call it. It was like the devil's food. And then I began to look at so many people, so many beautiful people in my block start to spike up. And you ever seen someone that looked like a flower and then after they shoot for two, three years or they look like a zombie, there's somebody that's dead and don't have sense enough to lay down? I began to look at them. So in my mind, at that young age, I'm like 12 years old, and I'm running with these junkies trying to find out why would you shoot these drugs? Because by that time, we didn't had people that was using drugs for quite a bit of time. And I'm saying, man, why would you shoot them drugs, man? Your father was a junkie. Didn't you see what happened to your father? Your mother's a junkie. Why would you do that? Your sister's a junkie. And word got back to my father and told my father, say, Earl, your son Johnny is running around with them junkies. You better talk to him. And my father pulled me on the side and said, son, I understand you running with them junkies. He said, I don't want that. He said, I brought you in this world and I'll take you out before I let you go that way. I love my father for just saying, I have enough gumption to step up to you to play. They ain't like these kids in the street today. Their daddy's scared to say anything to them. My father said, I'll die before I let you go kill yourself that way. But I was compelled anyway to go and find out why they wanted to shoot these drugs. My father said, they'll put them drugs on you. Well, I remember being up on 141st 
up on the roof, watching these guys with a little bench spoon, cooking up their drugs. And I used to mess with them at one time, and they used to chase me. But now when they ran at me, I wouldn't run. And I wouldn't run, and I wanted to ask them, why do you do this? They looked at me and they said, Earl, I told you that we would give you our drugs? Well, he's lying to you because not a junkie in America give you their drugs. You got to get your own. And then he said to me, he said, you know why we use drugs? Say, you know what it's like to be a father and a husband and have ideals and hopes and dreams to have a beautiful fight, uh, life, beautiful family? He said, you go home, man, and your daughter look at you and tell you, say, Daddy, my birthday is tomorrow. Are you going to buy me that dress that you promised me? Because it ain't like the day where girls wear jeans constantly. Back then, a girl had a dress on every day. It might have been the same dress, but it was clean every day. Are you going to buy me that dress, Daddy? Yeah, baby, I'm going to buy you that dress for your birthday. And he walked down the hall, and he stick his hands in his pocket, and there's nothing there but holes. Biting his lip. Next day, his son come and say, Daddy, my PE teacher told me that I need some tennis shoes for PE. If I don't get no tennis shoes, I'm going to fail my class. So it gets a little deeper now. It's infecting his education. Yeah, son, we're going to see what we can do. We're going to get you them tennis shoes. He go down the hall again. He look in his other pocket. He got bigger holes. And then here's the coup de grace. The wife come in and say, honey, we've been married for 15 years. Our anniversary's coming up next week. What are we going to do? Knowing he don't have no money. Knowing that he don't have no opportunity to go out and get him a decent job. He don't have no opportunity to go to a college to earn a living where he can do better. And those that did have the opportunity to go to college, they went look for a job. They told him, say, hey, man, you're not qualified. You need to go back to school. When you go back to school, they say, man, you can't get into this school. You go out and look for a job, and you look high, and you look low. And then you say, they give me a menial job, a substandard job. You know what it is to clean up shit, to go in the bathroom and mop all around the toilet, or to go down in the basement when they was dropping that coal and putting coal and soot and cancer and all that stuff in your body, your lungs, and then come home and you made $4 an hour. Then all of a sudden this heroin became like a magic wand to him. If I spike and I go to brush my teeth, I don't have to deal with the man in the mirror no more. I don't have to have the shame that I can't be a father to my kids or a man to my woman. It's not like kids today that say, let me get high because it's a social thing. So all those things I'm looking at as a kid, and then I look up at the fire department and realize they didn't went through black people houses in New York or Puerto Rican houses in New York that didn't have too much of anything. And if they had a fire in the house, a menial fire, if they had somebody leave some pot with some beans and some rice on the stove and the pot sends and the smoke came up, they'd walk in and be four bedrooms back then. They'd chop up every bit of furniture in the house spray it down with the water, and throw it out the window. And I remember one of my partners came home for lunch, and he went back, and I stayed back to talk to my father. And when he went back, his window was billing with smoke. Somebody ran and pulled the fire department alarm, here come the fire truck. They get there, they run upstairs and do their deal, and I'm sitting out there watching them chop everything up and throw it out the window. My father's still in the shop, banging in them shoes. I go in and say, Pop, why did they chop up everything and throw it out the window. Now, my father didn't leave the shop, but he looks at me like, son, are you crazy? What do you mean, why did they do it? It was a fire. I said, no, Pop, it wasn't no fire. Come out here, let me show you. He said, no, I can't. I said, Pop, come on, let me show you. 
I took him outside. I said, show me something burned, Daddy. I'm 11 years old. Show me something burned, Daddy. Show me where the fire is. I said, come on, let's go in the back. He said, no, I don't need to go in the back. I'm going to go find the fire captain. I want an explanation as to why this happened. I didn't have to go to the fire captain. I looked back and I realized that for the first time in my life, that if we're not in the room when they're making the decisions, we have no vote. There was no black firemen on the fire department. There was no black cops in my earlier years in New York City and Harlem. Who was going to take care of me? Who took care of Troy Davis? When you sit back and think about it. Think about we had one black man in that jury right there in the Supreme Court called Thomas. So oh, that's because you took all the time. I'm sorry. <laughs> all right, yeah, I'm going to close this out because they tell me my time is up anyway. But the essence of what I was saying is, is this. At a young age, I could not wait for adults to make the right move to make it a better society. I saw three people in my life as a kid that stepped up to the plate. The first man was a very fair-skinned man that I thought was a white man until I went to church and saw his father, and my dad said, that's his son there. The first man I saw in that church in Abyssinia Baptist Church was Adam Clayton Powell Sr. One day his son stepped up to the pulpit to start preaching, and I said, who is that? My father said, that's his son. I said, that can't be his son, Daddy. That's a white man. He's black. My father said, no, nah, son, he's not black. He's just fair-skinned. I said, he's fair-skinned. And he said, yes, uh, son, and he's not passing. What do you mean passing? He said, well, they have fair-skinned blacks that pass to try and go as whites. And I said, what are they, ashamed of who they are? They don't want to be black? And my father said, no, nah, son, it's not that they're ashamed of who they are. He said, they pass because they want a better standard of life. Now, if you put that parallel to the day, it's not that people leave Haiti and people leave Cuba because they don't like Fidel Castro, they don't like their country, they leave Haiti for the same reason that those people was passing, because they want a better standard of life. Somebody has to step up to the plate to make critical decisions about how we can make this a better society. It doesn't matter about how old you are, or how young you are, or how rich you are, how poor, or how white, or how black. It doesn't matter. It's a matter about whether you have a clear view as to what you see in this paradigm as to how life can be better for all people. Because when it comes down to the critical point in life, if you're on the ground and you die and you're a racist, you don't give a hoot what color you are. I'm blowing oxygen into you. If I had the cure for a heart disease and I'm the one that can cure you with this heart disease, you don't care if you're Asian, if you're Indian, you're black, if you're a ghost. Do what you go to save my life. And then I sat back and thought about all the creativity through people of color. God gave us a lot of talents, natural talents, and it wasn't all about athletics and it wasn't all about singing. He gave us a lot of talent, and I thought about, <coughs> excuse me, all the talent that we lost over the years due to the fact that people took drugs and dropped in the community, due to the fact that they stopped individuals from going to colleges of their choice, due to the fact that their families were broken up due to the drug situation. They 
went through school opposed to going to school. Many kids right now because they was disillusioned about what was happening in this country relative to their parents. Why am I going to school? They ain't never did nothing for my parents. When they got out the job, they didn't even get to go watch. So they think school is for fools and they're totally wrong. But somebody's got to stand there and try and turn the stampede around. I'm not no special person. I ain't no different than anybody sitting out here or anybody that sat in that stadium in Mexico City. With the exception of I'm willing to take a shot to try and make it a better world. Not for me, not for my partners, but for my kids and my kids' kids. My father was in the First World War, and he told me how it was. And I looked at my dad, and I told him in his dying bed, I said, Pop, you know something? You leaving here, and he's telling me, he said, son, what it took me a lifetime to do, you 24 years old, and you didn't surpass what I did by far. But I told him, I said, yeah, Pop, I surpassed you, but you know something? It's not much different now than it was when you was in the First World War. It might be disguised a lot better, but it's the same old game. I remember people telling me, say, oh, have patience. Things are going to change. Well, I said, Pop, how old was you when you heard that the first time? He said, when I went in the war, I was a teenager. They was telling me then, have patience. Things are going to change. My old man had a bullet hole in his jaw fighting for America. And I asked him every day, Pop, how you get that bullet hole? Tell me how you get that bullet hole. Well, when David told you I went to the hospital in his dying bed, and he read this article, and he read this article and said, Rap Brown, Stokely Carmichael, Harry Edwards, these are no good people. They're trying to destroy the country. They're militants. They're this, they're that. And they said the same thing about John Carlos. And my father laid in the bed, and he asked me, he said, son, why you do all these bad things? And I looked at him. I said, what are you talking about? He said, the article in the paper. I said, let me read it. And I read the paper. And all I could do is look at my father and say, Pop, you don't know Stokely Carmichael, do you? Do you know Rap Brown? What about Harry Edwards? Do you know him? He said, no, son, I don't know them. I said, well, I guess you don't know John Carlos either. And he looked at me. He kind of had the puzzled look. And I said, well, Pop, nobody on planet Earth know me better than you. Is that me who they're talking about? And my father just broke down and started crying. The fact that he could have the press write something and he believed the press over his son. Would he know what he raised? We both stood there and cried. And we wiped the tears away and said, now, Daddy, you going to tell me about that bullet hole? He said, yeah, son, help me get out the bed. I looked at him, we'll help you get out the bed for what, Pop? Tell me about the bullet hole. And he said, I can't tell you right now. I got to tell you when you help me up. And I helped him up out the bed, and he got up, and he reached around to pull his little skirt back, the little peekaboo he had, and he pulled it back. And I'm looking like, what you doing, Daddy? He said, I can't tell you about this hole until I tell you about this hole. I look, he had a bullet hole in his butt. I said, Pop, what happened? He told me, he said, I was in the First World War, and they told me, you know, the war was segregated. He said, but we had white officers that we had to follow their rule. He said, they told us to take this hill, barbed wire everywhere, mud everywhere. He said, we got tired of taking the hill. We talked about why don't they take the hill with us? They always sending us up to die. They need to crawl with us and go through the fight. And my father pressed the issue. His partners told him, said, Earl, come on, forget that. We got to go do the job. And he went. And he crawled into the barbed wire. And then all he said, he said, his blaze went through his butt. He said, when he turned around to see what happened, the commanding officer shot him in the ass. And when he got shot in the ass, the enemy in turn went and shot him in the jaw. And my old man was disillusioned when he walked out of the, out the uh, military and went to the military hospital. 
Then he said for the first time in his life, all through Camden, uh, South Carolina, he knew what was happening in the South. But he thought fighting for America, America would change. But he said America was the one that was trying to destroy his own sons. So this is why I had the fire that I have me to make it a better world. I don't want down that captain, but I do want to make the captain have a better paradigm in his mind about, hey, man, we all live here together. If we don't come together, we're going to die together. God bless you and thank you.